Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians 1.15. Let me read this, and I'm going to read it in the King James, and then I want to read uh, Brother Barclay's translation, because as usual, I'm, I'm falling back in love with uh, William Barclay and his translation. But in New King James, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. William Barclay translates it this way. It is because I have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love to all God's consecrated people that I never cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. It is the aim of my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and the, the spirit which brings you new revelation as you come to know him more and more fully. It is the aim of my prayers that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what hope, is, what hope his calling has brought to you what wealth of glory there is in our inheritance among the saints, what surpassing greatness there is in his power to us who believe with a belief that was wrought by the might of his strength, that power which wrought in Christ to raise him from among the dead and to set him at God's right hand in the heavenly places above every rule and authority and power and lordship, above every dignity which is held in honor, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. God subjected all things to him and gave him head above all the church, which is his body, the church, which is his complement on earth, the church, which belongs to him, who is filling all things in all places. Verse 15, Paul's kind of summing up everything that he's said before this. He said, Therefore, which basically, you know, the rule of Bible interpretation is when you see a therefore, you need to go see what it's there for. And he's basing this prayer on everything that he's already written up to this point. But he also, and I love the way he said this, he said, After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. And I've made this comment 
before that most Christians pray real hard for people to get saved. And the second they get saved, they quit praying for them. And Paul said, this is, this is when I'm really starting to pray for you. Now you need my prayers more than to get you born again. You need my prayers now that you are born again. And since he not only heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, but their love for other Christians, now you're going to run into opposition. And now we need to pray for you. And it also tells me that for the Apostle Paul, Preaching held a big place in Paul's life. I mean, he, I know I've been accused of being long-winded. And I have really cut back <laughs> in the last 10 years. Uh, I have, I, I, when I was my first uh, associate pastor's position, I went to a church where we quite regularly had two and three hour services, sermons. Not the service. You'd have an hour of praise and worship. And then at minimum was an hour and sometimes two hours of, of preaching. And that's kind of what I cut my teeth on. And, and Brother Hagan, I've gone back and started to listen to a lot of his sermons on YouTube just to, you know, they just feed, feed me. He feeds me, really. He just, he scratches an itch in my soul. Uh, but most of the sermons that are on there I've just kind of noticed they're a minimum of an hour, and some of them are an hour and a half. And I can remember sitting in them, and you'd think, you'd, you'd be surprised that you'd gone that long. When it got over, you'd look out on your watch, and you'd think, wow, it feels like we've been here 10 or 15 minutes. And even now, watching them on video, it, they go faster than what I thought. But prayer is an essential part. I mean, preaching is important, but pray, preaching without prayer is dead and and a christian without prayer is dead and not only prayer for ourselves but we need to learn to pray for others get our you know there's there are bigger things in the world it's one of the things that i've seen with churches when when i found churches that get get their eyes turned inward they usually have problems when you can get a church to turn their eyes outward get mission oriented get part or get hooked up and get to working for things that are bigger than just our little congregation, then suddenly people get more enthused. Because there's a lot to the Christian walk um, more than just getting my needs met. This is a perfect summary of what it means to be a true Christian. Paul heard of their faith towards Jesus Christ and their love to, for all of the saints. Barclay summarized that he said, the two things which must characterize any true church are loyalty to Christ and love to men. Most Christians, or let's just say all Christians, have, don't have a problem with loyalty to Christ. That's just part of being a Christian. But a lot of people have a problem with loyalty and love towards men. If you look at, especially like during the Middle Ages, but we still have a remnant of it today, monks and hermits. They have great loyalty to God, but they express that loyalty to God by pulling away from society and going off and praying and living uh, that monastic uh, life. And that's not what God's called us to. Now, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't challenge anyone that says God has called me just to a life of prayer and contemplation. I, I have no doubt that God, there, there are a lot of people, they just have a calling to pray. And they're never going to be an evangelist. They're never going to get up and speak to people. But man, you put them in their prayer closet, they'll move heaven and earth. But you can do that and still not withdraw from society completely. The other group are the heresy hunters. Probably the most, the worst example of that was during the Spanish Inquisition. Those people were very loyal to God. They took their Christianity very seriously, but they went to such an extreme that they were ready to torture people, to weed out heretics, and to the point where they murdered people. You can be loyal to God to the point where it turns you into a monster. Uh, I still see even today the heresy hunters. I think I said it on a Sunday morning recently. You know, some of the greatest revivals we, we have recorded happened on the day of Pentecost and right after that. Now, wouldn't the one book of the New Testament have been written yet? So they didn't have great doctrinal truths. They just knew Jesus had been born again. And that's all they preached. And it got people born again by the thousands, but they didn't have, they didn't have great doctrinal truths back then. So sometimes we make, and I'm not, I'm not um, downgrading being, having your doctrine correct, but some of the worst heresy hunters that I've met would, will tell you point blank, God doesn't heal today. God doesn't want to bless you today. And I would consider those two great heresies. So, you know, but that's, that's their, if that's what you want to choose to believe, then, you know, if you don't believe in healing, guess what? You don't have to worry about it. You're not going to get healed. You know, if you don't believe in God, well, most of them don't believe that God wants to prosper you until you talk about their finances. Then God wants to prosper them. It's other people he doesn't want to prosper. And then the other, the biggest example Jesus dealt with them were the Pharisees. I mean, Paul listed all the things. He said he was perfect as far as the law was concerned. And yet he went out and you know, he consented to the murder of Stephen. The fact that he held their coats, I've heard from some quarters that that basically meant that Paul was the prosecuting attorney. Now, he didn't pick up the rocks and chuck them at him. You know, the judge and the prosecuting attorney in our day don't carry out the death sentence. They don't put the needle in the arm and inject the, the drugs to kill the people. But without those two, it doesn't happen. Well, Paul was very loyal to God as much as his knowledge allowed him to be. But he was still mean as a snake. I mean, he was just hard-hearted. But then the first thing he prays for them that was before he got uh, before he got saved. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, but the Pharisees were were really serious about serving God, more so than the Sadducees. The Sadducees yeah. were just the rich, and as long as they kept their position, they didn't care what you believed. But the Pharisees really, and and they were they were genuine about it because they had seen what happened before Babylon that not keeping the law cost the nation dearly. 
And they were bound and determined that that would never happen again under their watch. And they put a lot of effort into that, and their heart was right. They just were wrong. They just, you know, they got, they got so, so caught up in keeping the rules that they, they became abusive with their rules. And what I've seen is when we get legalistic, that's what we do. We only judge people in areas where we have strength. Because if we judged them where, they, where we're weak, then we have to admit, I got some growing to do too. And legalists don't want to grow. Don't, you know, for God's sake, don't point the finger at me. My ego can't take it. <laughs> if I'm wrong, it's going to devastate me. I'm crushed. So I just look at the areas where I'm very strong at. And I judge everybody in, in the areas that I'm strong at. And I just don't pay attention to my weaknesses. Which, again, it just, it's, it's, it doesn't love people. Because we all have to realize we all got weaknesses somewhere. It's just other people, they're weak in a different area. Paul, Paul summed it up here. I don't, how does, how does it read it? I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul, in several of his writings, said, pray without ceasing. When I realize on a, on a very literal note, you cannot do that. You've got to eat, you've got to sleep, you've got to work. But... We never should ever get to a point where prayer isn't one of our highest priorities to pray about our lives, but also to pray for the needs of others. When, when God brings someone to your mind, we need to learn to stop and pray about it right then. And I, that's one of the things I love about the modern technology. You know, um, when I came to pray for Fran today, I didn't grab my Bible. I grabbed my phone, and on the way over there, I'm thinking, "Lord, give me a, give me a scripture," and but I could get in on my Bible program and type in a couple of keywords, and it gave me the scripture I was thinking about. And we've got so much technology that when we, when we see a need, we can stop for a second to pray and hook it right to a verse to pray over someone about. But notice one of the things he says in verse 17. This is the first thing he says that he's praying for us. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, that right there, and I'm, I'm, I am a Trinitarian, but I don't like to argue with people over the Trinity because... I've had a bunch of people tell me they understand the Trinity over the years, and when I ask them to explain it, <laughs> I just look at them and think, that doesn't explain it. There's so much more to it. I, I, don't think that, I don't think our minds can comprehend the nature of the Trinity. But this is a verse that very clearly states that these are two different personalities. It, it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He, he throws in right there, there are two persons that we are talking about here. We're talking about a father and a son. They're, they are one God, but there are two personalities. And there it, it's when you see Jesus, you do see all of, all of God. He's fully God, 
but he's different from the Father. And when you see the Father, he's all the God that there is, except there is also Jesus. That's why I say it's, it's, it's just inexplicable, and I don't think our minds can ever, ever fully comprehend it until we get to heaven, and then you won't have to comprehend it. It'll be there. But that's going to be so different. I, I've said before, Paul, I think in the, in the second letter of the Corinthians, said, you know, I, I, there was a man once that went to heaven. He said, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body. And he said, and I saw things that I, I'm not allowed to, to share. And, or he said, it's unlawful to share. And I don't know if some of that is that God said, I don't want you to share this, or some of it was Paul saying, I don't know how to explain what I saw because there's nothing that we have in common that would give you a picture that's anywhere close to being accurate to what heaven is really like. But we do know it's beyond us. But his first request that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The word, therefore, for wisdom is the word Sophia, which we already looked at. It's, it's, it really represents a deep, um, a deep understanding of the nature of God. It's different than the word knowledge, Knowledge, we are, we are required to acquire it. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. There are several places in the New Testament that says, If you don't have wisdom, ask for wisdom. That's something that God will... It's what Paul's praying here. God, give them wisdom. But I haven't found anywhere... Old or New Testament, where it says, ask God for knowledge. Other than kind of in a tangential way, uh, when it talks about the, the gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians, it talks about the word of knowledge. God will give us a word of knowledge about something that's happening so you can minister to someone. But asking God to give you, in fact, I used to, my kids in school, they knew I was a pastor and they'd say, you know, we, we're getting ready to take a test. And they said, well, will you pray for us, me on this test? I really need help. And I said, certainly. And I'd look right at them. I'd say, God, bring back everything to their mind that they've studied on. And they'd look up at me like, no, that's not what I wanted. I didn't study. That's the problem. I want God to give it to me supernaturally. Well, he won't do that. But he will. And I, Bob Yandian put it this way. He said, um, Wisdom is input, or no, knowledge is input, wisdom is output. We gain the knowledge of who, of who God is. We gain the knowledge of who we are, what God's given us, where we stand in the world, where we stand with God, where we stand with, you know, with, with his plan for our lives. We get all of that knowledge, and then he gives us the wisdom of how to apply that in our lives. Because without him giving me the wisdom, because we've all met people like I'm going to describe. I had a friend in elementary school. Oh, man, he was, if he wasn't genius level, I've never met genius level. And I've met some people that, 
I'm quite sure they were geniuses. He knew things. He just was a whip. I mean, he was straight A student. He knew everything, but he couldn't tie his shoes hardly. He had no common sense. He couldn't relate to people socially. And I even wonder now if if some of the if and I don't really think he was. He wasn't that awkward. But I've seen a lot of people that um, have Aspergers, where they're a little bit onto the that that um, autistic spectrum and they're brilliant but they're very very awkward socially and they just don't seem to have any common sense about how normal life runs how things interaction well that's wisdom you can have all the knowledge in the world but if you can't apply it one of my favorite ones was I, I like to watch the Big Bang Theory and I know in a lot of yeah, well, in a lot of places, that would that would get me consigned to, obviously, you're not saved. But the one I was thinking of, there was an episode where all four of the guys were in a car, and they were coming back from somewhere, and the car started sputtering. And it finally just quit, pulled off to the side of the road. And um, uh, Leonard was driving, and he said, uh, anybody know anything about fixing a car? And they all three in the back seat. I mean, you got an engineer and two astronomers. They said, oh, yeah, I understand, you know, this and this. He said, no, you know how to repair the car. Oh, no, not a bit. Well, I could go through with my knowledge of science from teaching science for years. I could go through and tell you the chemical reactions that happen. I can tell you the physics involved in pushing those pistons down and how the crankcase has to turn and where the circular momentum comes in. But if I got to fix it, I take it to a mechanic. <laughs> I can't, all that knowledge doesn't do me a bit of good because I don't have the wisdom to apply it. And that's what Paul's saying. You've got, I, I, I've already told you a bunch of things in chapter one that these are yours. And I'm going to give you even more revelation later on. But you need, none of this is going to do any good if you don't know how to apply it to your life. And I even look back on my own life, and I've given my testimony before. I was eight years old when I got saved. And at 17, I walked away from the Christian life because it was just too hard. I had no one ever taught me how to live life as a Christian. They just basically, my little church, you get born again, you do the best you can do. And if you run into problems, you come down front and you rededicate. Well, from, I've said it before, from 8 to 17, in that nine years, I bet I re rededicated my life a thousand times. And I finally, as a teenager, you know, I was a little bit rebellious anyway, a little bit. I just said, forget it. I'm going to go live with, like the world lives because this doesn't work. And it didn't work for me. And even when I finally, you know, the devil beat my brains in, and I was 28 when I came back to, to serving the Lord, I still had no idea how to do it. So one of the things that really intrigued me about going to Rama and sitting under Brother Hagin's ministry, when I listened to what he had to say and I read about the school, it's like, this is what I'm looking for. He explained how you take these concepts and who you are in Christ and how they actually work in your life. And it's like, and I, I heard him tell stories on himself about how he made it work in his life. And it's like, that's what I want. Then, you know, I, pick, I quit my job, picked my family up, moved 700 miles with no job and no money. And 
<laughs> I look back on it now and I think my father-in-law and my father, I, it's just a wonder they didn't track me down, beat me with a baseball bat. But it, God, God blessed us. But that's the wisdom that, that he's talking about. Plato said it. He said, the unexamined life is a life not worth living. Unexamined religion is a religion not worth having. And I used to use this, I wrote this down, I used to use this as my motto when I taught Bible at um, the high school I taught at. We had 80 different churches represented in the five grades that I taught. And man, if you don't think that'll get your legs cut off or you shot, I mean, the doctrine in those 80 churches, there were a lot of doctrinal conflicts. So I went into it with, this was my philosophy, and I told the kids this. I said, I do not care what you believe. What I care about is you being able to go to the Bible and tell me why you believe what you believe. If you can show me from the scriptures why you have this doctrinal stance, I will accept it, whether I agree with it or not. But it is unacceptable for you to come and say, well, that's what mom and dad believe. That's what my church believes. That's what my pastor believes. Those are not answers. You're going to have to go to the Word and show me. And I'm telling you, it, oh, man, it's like I tied a, na a, a knot in a cat's tail. Those kids just, well, the seniors I had the last year I was there, I got frustrated with one, one day and threw my Bible down. <laughs> And just said, I don't know what your all's problem is, but I'm about to just take a ham, have a hissy fit. You know, none of you are liable to come out of this room alive, because it's just it's like dealing with, you know, 13 concrete heads. You don't listen to anything. And one little girl finally had the courage. She held up her hand. She said, Mr. Roberts, we've been in Bible class. This is our 12th year of Bible. There is nothing you can teach us. And she was 18 years old, and it just immediately was like, man, I can remember when I was that smart, when I had that much knowledge. But it was an eye-opener to me. And I'll guarantee you, because my kids were in that school through eighth grade, I wouldn't play Bible trivia. That game came out during that time. I never won a game of Bible trivia against my kids. They knew those Bible stories frontwards backwards sideways upside down they just they mopped gina and i up but they knew all of the facts they weren't living any of it and they didn't know how to live it so i told them i said i don't i don't doubt that you know a lot of facts but i challenge you to show me how it applies in your life and you don't know where in the bible the the big doctrines are and we a subject would come up and i'd say well now where do you find that in the bible nobody would know i'd say okay find it that's your assignment and for after about two weeks of that finally they just said okay we figured it out you you know a little more than we know because <laughs> they every once in a while they challenged me all right smart Alec, where is it and i'd say well it's these verses and it's like wow and how does that go? And, 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 of course, they were like the heresy hunters. They were dogmatic in what they believed. And, I mean, they were teenagers. Yeah. Teenagers know everything. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on. No. I'm picking on your group and your ear taking the brunt of it. But, 
but it's it's they were dogmatic in what they believed and in fact we got into a discussion one day is there ever a social situation where it is appropriate to lie and it was no no and i said so when uh, cory ten boom living in holland i think it was holland somewhere up in that area when when the nazis came to her door and knocked on her door and they said do you have jews here was it okay for her to lie and tell them no i do not or should she have been honest with them and said yes they're hiding in my attic and they would have gone and gotten them and sent them to a concentration camp and killed them. And they just, they, they kind of blinked and said, well, you know, um, um, um. <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, it was a moral twister and they didn't have an answer. I said, well, I, I can tell you right now, I know she lied and I think God will, will bless her for lying in that situation. I said, there, you just cannot make these hard and fast ethical rules that they always apply i said in general yes lying it's not appropriate but there are times when there are exceptions to that and oh those exceptions just drove them crazy but paul says i want you to have that wisdom from heaven to know when the exception is to know you know how do i take this truth I'm seated with him in heavenly places. What does that really mean to me? Does that have an effect on how I live? Well, it should. Um, he also, he wants us to, and I think this is verse 18. Um, let me find verse 18 here. Yes. Well, let me read it with verse 17. He said that the... I, I do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Notice that spirit in the King James, New King James, is little s. Um, this is talking about, an, uh, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's just talking about a spirit more in an attitude or a working of wisdom. But then in verse 18, it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That the Greek word there for understanding is the word cardia, where we get cardiac. It literally should be, and that's how um, Barclay translated it. Um, he translated it, if I can find it. Uh, it is the aim of my prayers that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And it's really more of a, a reference to, um, to our mind. I think of, of Romans 12, um, 1 and 2, where um, Paul there said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which that's an oxymoron. Sacrifices were always killed. He says, but I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. You're not your own. You're living it out to God, but you're not going to die. You've got to live to do this. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what that wisdom and knowledge that Paul's praying for them to have does. It changes the way you think. 
And that's part of what I referred to about Plato, about an unexamined life is not worth living. We ought to be, you know, I think the greatest tragedy I've ever witnessed is when I would teach and I'd deal with teenagers and then I would meet their parents and realize their parents were in their 30s and 40s, but they still acted like teenagers. And I would feel sorry for the kids. I'd think they don't have any hope. They don't have an adult at home. In fact, I had several teenagers that one little girl in particular, she was a hard case. But then I found out both of her parents were drug addicts and they were on welfare. And when they sent, when they were still actually sending the um, checks to the house, she had to always leave school early to get to the mailbox to make sure she got the checks so they could, so she could pay the rent and she could buy groceries. Otherwise, if her parents got there, they would go hungry because they'd spend it all on dope. Well, she was the adult in that situation. In fact, she had a full ride to um, Indiana State, and she didn't. She, at first, she wasn't going to go because what am I going to do with my little brothers and sisters? And it was—I mean—you just my heart ached for her. But if we don't examine our life, we don't grow. Well, part of that—that's part of what being mature is all about—is praying for those. Not only praying for those that aren't mature to grow up, but praying, sowing that seed of prayer so that someone's praying for me. Because even as mature as I am, I still got room to grow. You know, I've said it before if, if you grab your wrist, if your heart's beating, God's not done with you. And He's got something to do. And there's room to grow for that. And the great part of it is we can do that. Second Peter. Uh, 3 17 and 18 he says therefore beloved since you know this beforehand beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus or our lord and savior jesus christ peter says we can grow in grace and grow in knowledge and actually i think we grow in grace by growing in knowledge the more we, we know and the more, really not so much the more that we know, but the more that we know and apply, God can pour out more grace on us and pour out more glory on us. Uh, Isaiah 33, the very first part of verse 6 says, Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. And if you've ever seen that, seen people that they just have an unstable life, it's usually, well, I'll just put myself up on the, the spectrum. From 17 to 28, when I'm the really rough part of my life, um, I was very unstable. Man, I was, I was one crazy puppy. But it was because I had, a, I had a lot of natural knowledge. I didn't have any wisdom, and I had no biblical knowledge. Uh, for growing up in church, I, I just, none of it ever stuck. I don't know if I wasn't paying attention or they weren't teaching real well. Um, but it didn't get to me. God told Joshua. I mean, Joshua had one of the hardest jobs in the world. He had to take over for Moses. Well, you know, I've, I've known some pastors that took over for very well-known, very established 
pastors. Um, I look here. I, I would have hated to have been in Mike Ennis' shoes taken over for Leonard. I mean, you, I don't care what you do. You're, never, you're going to have a hard time measuring up. Well, think of poor Joshua. He's taken over for Moses. Moses is still revered to this day 3,000 years later. But God told him, this is Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. It wasn't just meditating on it. It was meditate so that you can observe to do and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It all comes down to being able to get the Word in you and let the Word um, change you. Because verse 18, the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Um, It is just to get revelation, and we've all had the experience, I think, where um, you get a revelation on something and you go to someone close to you and you say, man, let me tell you about this. And you read a scripture to them and they look at you like, yeah, so what? I've read that scripture a thousand times. And you think, why can't they see this the way I see it? Well, because they don't have the revelation. And I've had, Gina, I've had Gina do it to me, and sometimes she gets frustrated with me. She said, no, there's more to it than that. I said, well, I'm sure there is, and you just got a revelation, but I don't have it, so be patient, you know. And I, it's, it's almost like, you know, you have friends that hang around together, and suddenly two of the friends fall in love. Well, they just step their relationship up a whole new level, and they look at each other differently now. They can still be friends, but it's a different thing. Well, that's what enlightenment does. It's, it's, it's in, a, in a way that revelation is a good way to, it's like the light bulb goes off, and suddenly you just get it. And once you get it, well, you can lose it. I've had, um, I've had a few pastor friends and I've even noticed in my own life uh, I've had a few pastor friends that just they left the ministry and follow fell away they got discouraged they got offended and just walked away from it didn't go to church didn't do anything just went out and lived in the world and when they finally God got a hold of them they came back it's like I know I used to know more I used to I knew these scriptures and now I'm having to learn it all over again. Well, let's face it. You and I are old athletes. Emphasis old rather than on the athletes. But I can, somebody, um, I put pictures on, on Facebook today of the skating party Sunday. And one of my friends, he's from Virginia, commented on there. He said, uh, I don't see you on there anywhere. And I said, nope, and you won't. Because I used to skate, I still can skate, but I used to also fall. And when I fell, I got up and went on. Today, when I fall, I lay there and they call an ambulance. And, and it takes months to get over the pain. So I said, you won't see me out there on roller skates anymore. I don't do that. It just, there's too big a price to pay. 
I used to be able to swing a bat. Man, I could, you know, I played center field where I played baseball because I could never hit a curveball, so I was horrible. Once the pitchers figured out I couldn't hit a curveball, guess what? I never saw anything but curveballs. You'd have thought eventually I'd have figured it out. But I was fast. I was quick as a hiccup, and I, they put the, the put me in center field and put the left fielder on one line, the right fielder on the other line, and I covered my field and half of theirs. And you, if, unless you hit a home run, you didn't hit anything to, in the park to the outfield that we didn't get. But today, I can't, you know. If I tried to run, I'd probably fall down. After three steps, I'd lose my balance. Well, why is that? Well, part of it is because I don't do it anymore. Part of it is just age. Your joints don't work the way they used to. But a lot of it, it it's just a skill that if you don't use it every day, you you learn that you lose the ability to do it. The same way with with spiritual things. When you quit backsliding isn't just living in sin, but sometimes backsliding, you just lose the spiritual skills that you had acquired, you know. That's why I think it's important to, to put lots of time in study and in prayer. Uh, in fact, Gina and I, we when we were on coming back from visiting the kids, we had long, many, many hours to talk. And um, we both decided... We're getting rid of our cable. And I wouldn't ask anybody to get rid of their TV. But I'll tell you, for me, it's become an addiction. And it's it's as bad as crack cocaine. I just, I have, I told her, I said, no, I'm telling you, when we finally pull the plug on it, I probably won't be a happy camper for a month or so because I'll go through withdrawal. <laughs> but I find that I, I, I waste so much time watching things that I just, at the end, it's like eating potato chips. I love them. They taste good. But at the end, what have you got? Greasy fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Greasy fingers. That's it. That's all you got. You know, it's, um, there are, this really does help. And let me, let me leave you with this thought. And this is looking forward to next week. Um, in the, the next thing he he prays for here is for hope and I know for myself um, life without hope man it's just not worth living when you finally lose hope there's there's just not much point in you living anymore Um, these two quotes and I'll go back over, over these one I found was for Sir Philip Gibbs, and I guess he was a World War I veteran. And between World War I and World War II, in that brief little period where everybody just rearmed, um, he made this statement. I guess he was, a, he was a fairly famous writer. He said, if I smell poison gas in Edgware Road, I'm not going to put on a gas mask or go to a gas-proof room. I'm going out to take a good sniff of it, for I shall know that the game is up. And I mean, he had lived through World War I, had fought. I know I just watched um, on the History Channel the other day about the Battle of Verdun. And I'd heard of it, but I never really knew many of the facts. 
in 303 days this battle raged in World War I, there were 1.2 million casualties in that battle. And there are still thousands and thousands of acres that they fought over that are fenced off that no one is allowed in. Um, the few areas adjacent to it, farmers farm it, and at least once a year, a farmer will blow up his tractor hitting unexploded ordnance, plowing his fields. And they haven't had anybody killed for a few years, but they have, they've lost a lot of tractors and scared the bejeebers out of a lot of farmers, you know. But having lived through that, this guy's attitude was he had smelled poison gas used on a battlefield. He said, if this starts again, I'm just going to go breathing in and be done with it and quit because I don't want to live through this again. If you've ever uh, read Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings, or watched the movies, that was where he got his uh, vision of Mordor. That barren, evil landscape was from the battlefields of World War I. And it's part of the reason, one of the things, I had a, a, a man, we, Gina and I had known his wife for many, many years, and... Um, they got married, and I got to know him a little bit, and I got to talk to him about the Lord one time, and he said, I would like to get saved, he said, but I can't. I said, well, why can't you? He said, well, I, he worked or, or served on one of the, he was in the Navy, but it was on one of the river boats that the Naval, Navy served, and that was a... Like a PT boat, it was one of the, the river patrol boats. And he said, some of the things that I did, and, and I got the idea that he might have been special forces in that early years. Um, he said, some of the things I do, I did during the war. He said, I cannot, God will never forgive me. And I could never convince him. And I talked to him for hours, but I could never convince him that Jesus had already paid the price for those sins. And he wouldn't ask for forgiveness because he knew he was too bad that God wouldn't forgive him. And that lack of hope, there was just a wall there, and I never was able to penetrate that wall. Now, I pray, I don't know, he's, um, he's got to be in his 70s now or close to it. So I pray someone got to him at some point because I haven't seen him for 20 years. But um, that lack of hope was devastating to him. Devastating to me when I went through that period without hope. Uh, it's just not a, uh, not a place any of us want to be. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.